0: Hey Queeros, Cammie here, so excited because we are replaying this episode with Alice Wu. This is from a couple weeks ago, but Alice's new movie, The Half of It, is available now on Netflix and it's getting incredibly positive reviews. I also will say Alice's film, um, Saving Face, is one of the movies that changed my life. So I I love this director, I loved this conversation, And here's a sidebar. I did an hour of stand-up on Zoom for the first time this last week, last week. And uh, y'all, 1,000 people came immediately. I had a 1,000-person Zoom room, and and people could not get in. It was filled to capacity because whoopsie-daisy. So thank you all for coming. I'm going to possibly do another one. How you could stay up to date is to look at my socials. That's where I'm going to post all of my shit cuz that's what my job is now is to be on social things including my brand new TikTok. Anyway, um look, check it out. Save Yourself is a book that you can buy supporting indie booksellers. Written by me. The end and enjoy the episode. I've been feeling wrong but I'm stolen. Well, first of all, actually, let me start by how I always start the podcast, which is by having you introduce yourself. Will you introduce yourself?
1: Oh, no. (laughs) 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 Um, um, Hi, I'm Alice Wu. I'm a uh, filmmaker, improviser, uh, an order Muppet. And I have a film coming out uh, on May 1st. And I also have to say that, uh, and this is, the honest truth, that I have friends who are, like, excited about my film, but who genuinely are far more excited that I'm on this podcast (gasps) than that I have a film coming out. So
0: I I have to say, this is, like, a true moment for me. Oh, um, I'm fully the sweatiest because... And I think you sort of know this because I've, like... I've, like, Twitter DM'd you as much, but your first film, Saving Face, is one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, I saw it um, at... So it came out 15 years ago, and um, I don't know what was going on in your life at that time, and I'm going to ask you. Uh, But in my life at the time, I I just do not remember seeing something that felt as, like, a sweet... And, like, truly a rom-com, but it's so specific. You know, it's taking place in a world that is so detailed that it feels real. Um, Which is what the best rom-coms do, right? Is that they take that heightened feeling of romance, try to capture it in, you know, an hour and a half or whatever, but give you a detailed enough world where it makes sense. And I just, like, I've loved your movie ever since. And it's, it just, it, like, actually changed my life. Your movie actually changed my life. So, I just feel like wow. completely honored to speak to you. Do Do you mind my
1: asking, like a specific, like when you say it changed your life, I, I'm I'm so honored, like incredibly, and also that movie's much bigger than me. Like I, that, we can talk about that later. And and the reason why is exactly what you just said, which is like I wrote this very specific experience, um, but I had no idea. I mean, first of all, who the hell thought that movie was going to get made, right, like 15 years ago? And when it did, I, I honestly think, again, it, it's much bigger than me, not only because of all the amazing people who came together to make it, but because of like people like you. And and um, the other day, someone from my high school, who's 17 years old, wanted to interview me for my high school newspaper, and she just discovered the movie, and like, her experiences and what it meant make me feel really humbled. So, so yeah, well, if, if you don't mind, I, I'd love to hear,
0: like, what specifically
1: you took from it.
0: Yeah, I'd love to tell you. Um, well, there's a couple things. First of all, uh, this is just, like, random specificity. My sister is a dancer, so one of the main characters is a dancer. I don't know why, like, that was a great entry point for me, because obviously it's also about a Chinese-American community, and so, like, There was the learning about some cultural specificity that was outside of my understanding, plus the overlap with something that I know really well. So that's just one thing that I'll say. Another part of it is the mom and daughter relationship in that film. You know, I was at the time, 15 years ago, let's see, how old would I have been? I would have been 23. And I was in a stage in my life where I was having a really complicated experience with my parents. And what I loved about or I think what you know happened to me watching watching Saving Face was that it it isn't uh it just felt very real. It felt like a complicated real chi- parent-child relationship because the the parent is flawed, the child is not perfect. It's like a a potentially a workaholic then the mom is feeling useless in some ways because she's been separated from her community and so it just felt like i don't know i felt a lot of i felt a lot of commonality with the characters and it also gave me something to look forward to like that maybe i would be able to get a relationship with my parents back and that it it could be oh because then the mom also has a relationship with her parents. So, you know, you see the way that generations are trying to deal with people being more true to their identity. It just really affected me. And I, the kissing is cute, and there's chemistry between the two main characters. The end. That's no, I, that's, I a, a, that's a that's a sweaty early review. Yes. Uh, what do you think about uh, that?
1: That is, like, the best review ever. I, I actually am really... Um, touched that uh, you could speak so sort of honestly and and articulately and just like it, it was so emotional and so smart and and as a you know it, it, why I love that um so now I'm inarticulate because I'm so moved by what you said um and why I ask is because I I, I think as a any probably any artist but certainly for me as a filmmaker. You know, there's that moment when you're alone and you're writing, and I think in that moment, the thing I try to do is write the thing that feels most emotionally honest to me, uh, and I generally believe that the more specific you are, um, the more universal things become, and that has to do with, I mean, just as a, as a filmmaker, I fundamentally believe that we're far more similar than we are different, um, and that most people we pretty much want the same things. We we want a chance to love in all the various ways we can. We want to belong. Um, and we probably all want some sort of sense that we have a purpose in our lives, right? I, I don't think that really changes so much, um, no matter whether you are gay or you're bi or you're black or you're Asian. It, and given that, um, and, and I guess for me, it was just a theory i had but it proved true when this film that i very much wrote for my mom I, I i wrote it as a uh my mom was going through a hard time um she had a very hard time with my uh coming out as gay i came out my senior year of college and, and it was very difficult for her for many years um and i wrote this film in my late 20s um right and you know it was like around 27 28 right when the main character. Um, like at the main character's age. And the goal for me was I was working through trying to tell my mom that it wasn't too late in her life um, to find love, right? And and so as I'm writing this, it's so funny because the whole time I'm making this film, I think I'm writing it for my mom. But I think it's that thing where once the film was made and it came out, I realized I'm far more selfish than that. Like that film is totally... (laughs) (laughs) about me right like it's it's like i wrote it for my mom but when i watch it i realize oh this is really about someone who desperately wants to be able to have romantic love and have her family and as queer people we rarely get to see images of sometimes having either frankly but certainly not having both in a way that feels honest You know, it it often feels, either it feels like we're watching like a fair, total fairy tale where nothing feels real, or it feels very depressing because you end up with these, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like more quote unquote realistic, but it it, it seems to enforce the message. Um, And and I I also have, I'm I'm detouring a bit, so tell me if this is a bad, I'm meandering, but I, 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 do have a theory that growing up um, when you're closeted um, and maybe you're not even out to yourself, which is what was true for me, but I had crushes on girls that I can remember from like third or fourth grade. Um, but you you kind of know that these are not crushes you can talk about, right? So it sort of enforces this idea that love is kind of not for you, oh, yeah. Right? Like whether you're conscious of it or not, you think, well, clearly... If you can't ever tell anyone about this, then probably the arc of love for someone who's queer is necessarily tragic because the best case scenario would be something like maybe you just harbor this crush forever and they're your friend, or maybe something happens between the two of you, but then you can never see each other again, (laughs) or, you know, like this is sort of what you think is the best there is. Yes. Yeah, so the idea of of when I made this film that maybe things could end happily um quote unquote in a real way, right? Like not not like in a way of I get to have both at the time felt incredibly subversive. Yes. Um and so everything you're saying kind of bears that out and and what was funny is when the film did come out literally the one thing i got all the time is i got asked at festivals um sometimes critics would be like oh this is like feel good nonsense like this wouldn't happen or you know people at festivals are like could that really happen and it's funny as a filmmaker because it's like i don't know i just wrote this thing i'm not god i can't tell you what's gonna happen but i also knew that i was like listen I, i i don't know i i don't know if it can happen for everyone I do think for those characters, I believe that they could get there, but I'm aware of how subversive that is. But I will also tell you that why bother making a film and putting all that blood and sweat into something if you're not going to go for it, right? Like, what? What? there's no point in my telling everybody, yes. You know, like, I, I don't want to leave you in a place where you feel like, and whatever it is that you think your life is, that's all it's going to be. Like, my goal is to hopefully make you feel connected to something larger and hope for more for yourself. And so my goal at that point is like, look, I, I as a queer woman, I don't know if this can happen, but I really want and need to believe it can. Um, and I need to see it. Otherwise, I will never be able to believe it can. And... Right. (laughs) The fascinating thing is that 15 years later, like people now talk about that film as if it's like, because I would say the time it came out, it was well-reviewed. But I think even then it was just like, oh, this is like a sweet thing. People now talk about it as if it's this amazing thing. But what's really funny is that nobody thinks the ending is too happy.
0: Wow. Yes, I read that because you sent out a a director's letter um, with the screener for your new film, the half of it. And I read it. And that's sort of one thing that you covered in it was this... I mean, it's funny because what I hear in what you're saying is that you were making, in some ways, the aspirational film for yourself to aspire to. Like, given that there's nothing in the culture that exists, sometimes we have to make the thing. And I certainly feel, as an artist, the tension between um, having and getting to create the aspirational version of your future... And then also acknowledging like the true pain and suffering because I think that's sort of what you're talking about. Um, and by the way, the true pain and suffering is not necessarily what I think you were also alluding to, which is like, I mean, I always talk about the trope that like, like two, it's like the lesbian kiss, and then uh, they both get shot through like a like a errant bullet that comes through the, through two windows at the same time, like how. I mean that literally happened in a in a show of uh, The uh, 100. It doesn't matter. I'm very deep in my <laughs> lesbian. The the but um it was an arrow, not a gun. But um so I think Good. like there's that Good sort of exploitative straightness view, but then there's like you know, there's Moonlight and I guess that movie does have a beautiful happy ending. Um but it's not a rom-com and also came out, you know, 13 years or whatever after your film, I think like, I just hear what you're saying and it's like, I mean, that is so, that makes me, it, it makes me pissed off because it's like, we don't get to create our own rooted in reality fantasies. Mm-hmm. Like doing stand up and talking about my life, I have sometimes chosen to share a rosier view of a particular story Because sometimes we get to have a rosy view, you know, like I just think because we're queer and we're mired in struggle, then like, then we don't get to imagine a beautiful moment for us, for ourselves. We don't get to imagine a payoff. We don't imagine we don't get to imagine. And I and it's also was really interesting and impactful to me. I know that this is mostly going to be listeners, not mostly. This is going to be only listeners. But you're talking to me about being a poor person who still is connected to their family, and because we're on Zoom and I'm in your home, I can see that, like, over your shoulder, I believe are family photos. Yes,
1: uh, my mom, my grand. Do you want to see
0: them? Oh my god, oh, this Yeah. this weird on a podcast? No, I would love to see them. Yeah, yeah, these are your family photos. Oh my god, I feel like I'm completely honored. This <laughs> is so cool.
1: So uh, this is one of my favorites. This, These are my grandparents on my mom's side. Oh, my uh, gosh. My grandfather literally looks like Asian Gregory Peck.
0: He's <laughs> stunning. I mean, obviously, your grandmother yeah. also is, but, like, jeez, your grandfather is a true yeah. fox with that nose. It's, it's like true. A... I'm yeah. actually
1: pretty sure, because they, they grew up in a tiny town in the province of Anhui, and... Um, that's where apparently Marco Polo's, like, that was part of that road. And so I'm super convinced that some Italian Roman oh.
0: person made
1: it with somebody. Because where the hell did he get that nose? It's so a very, I, it's I, a very sharp nose. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is kind of hilarious. This is my mom. Um, she was very young. I don't know if you can see that. Oh, my uh,
0: goodness. Yeah, Where is she there in this photo? She's like lounging, sort of. It looks She's like- in San Francisco in the Golden Gate Park. Oh, I can't see the bridge yeah. in the uh, resolution yeah. of the camera on, yeah. on the photo. Oh, there it is. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes, she is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And this is, okay, so I have to tell you. In fact, I could probably show you. I was universally considered in my family an ugly baby. And Chinese <laughs> people do not pull their punches. like they just say it like it is and now that i've shown you my family oh hang on let me show you another photo of my mom Um, (laughs) so there's another photo of my mom
0: oh Um, my gosh like she's beautiful look at her yes she's beautiful
1: yes um so (laughs) that whole side of the family is very very attractive and i look nothing like them and as a baby, and I say this very proudly of how they are and how they look, but it was super funny to me that when I was born, like, and this is a testament to my mom, I apparently was full of confidence growing, <laughs> like, as a as a baby. I lost it all by the time I went to school. That was, like, a disaster. <laughs> but um, I also, I think I didn't, you know, like, my whole family would be like, oh, my God, how are we going to marry this one off? And oh I really gosh. just didn't care. <laughs> like I think, I think it's a. Uh, uh, I mean, maybe maybe I knew I was queer then. I don't. I don't know. But I think that it, it was like actively discussed, as in like, oh, what will we do with this one? But I'm sort of grateful because, you know, I mean, I'm human. Of course, I'm vain. As I got older, of course, you know, when you start to want to attract someone, you want to look good. But I never really had the I'm. I don't know. Maybe because I also watched my mom, this very beautiful woman, and all the baggage that comes along with that in terms of how people treated her, you know, and and she's a wonderful, marvelous person. Like, thank God, she's incredibly funny and warm and she has a great personality, probably because she has such low self-esteem <laughs> about like she herself would not acknowledge she's beautiful, right? And maybe that's also being an immigrant, honestly, like coming here and maybe the Western society didn't acknowledge it. But it really helped me not, I don't know, it's not something that I have as much baggage around because I never thought, oh God, I need to be
0: pretty. Um, Because it just honestly seemed so Uh, stressful. That's so interesting to me. Well, I I feel like there's like a couple follow-up questions I want to ask because, I mean, I would say like, this is an outsider's opinion, so you do not have to agree with me. I would say like by any account... You are like a conventionally attractive adult, right? Do you not feel that way? (laughs) Okay, this is starting to get embarrassing. No, but I just mean like, I just mean like, okay, here's my question. Here's why I asked this question. When I was a kid, I got a lot of information about how I looked, some of which I actually think was gender patrolling. Like, I have realized later in my life that. Um, I have a very hard time identifying whether or not I'm attractive, like at all, because I, because I I literally have multiple
1: friends who would disagree violently (laughs) with you, but go ahead.
0: Well, it just isn't a real thing. You know, I think like as somebody who has, um, like the masculinity that I am displaying right now, some people have a strong response to that is positive, some people still have a strong response to that is negative. Like, for instance, like, I could still, somebody could still say shit to me on the street, and then I'm walking to a show where then somebody responds in a very different way. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. there's, like, I just think as a, Mm -hmm. I find that it's hard to place, for me, where I fit in culture, because I have gotten very positive messages and very negative messages. And I just am wondering if any of that could relate to what you're talking about. But then there's an additional specificity, which is um, being an Asian woman in American culture, which is like a whole other thing in terms of people giving you messaging about how you look. Um, So I I I don't know. First of all, I love that we're talking about this. Can I just appreciate
1: that for a moment? (laughs) Because I've never actually had this conversation. (laughs) So um, I mean, I guess in little ways with my friends, but I, I love what you just said, because you're absolutely right that, you know, growing up, we're given conventional images of what is attractive. But also what I hear and what you're alluding to is within the queer community, there's yet a different kind of
0: way of looking at it. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
1: Which sometimes feeds into my belief that in a way, queer, like, I I strongly identify with being an immigrant, right? Like, English wasn't my first language, but I often feel like when you're queer, we're also like immigrants in, you know, in a segment of society because we're not, people, either we quote-unquote pass and people can't tell that there's something about us and that's frustrating, or we just make a choice and we can't pass, and then that's a whole different thing, right? Yes. And it, there's a layer of different sorts of guilt around, like, what happens if you do ascribe to conventional societies, um, uh, standards of beauty, how will your queer community feel? Um, all the ways that that, like, it, it's a whole, I mean, for the most part, I celebrate the fact that anytime there's that level of uh, disruption, I feel like it creates opportunity for more different kinds of people to be the way they want. Mm. But that doesn't mean we don't still all have to deal with the emotional baggage that comes from years of growing up with those um, rigid sort of structures. So it's interesting. yeah.
0: Well, I want to ask you, when you when you were talking about... I, I love your comparison of the immigrant experience with queerness, I guess, sort of that idea of being a visitor um, in a culture that you also are part of. You know, like you're constantly reminded of your otherness. Meanwhile, you have no other place that is your place to be. You know, the, the tension of all of those things. And I was watching... The um, half of it this morning and thinking about that in contrast to Saving Face and congrats on the new film by the way um, I was like smiling the entire time I watched it I I just I felt so happy to have um, work from you to get a chance to watch and thank you um, um, a huge difference that like st- stood out to me immediately is that the um, Saving Face is I was trying to if like besides at the hospital if there are any white characters in that movie like it's not really yeah there's
1: literally one like two the friend of the women. Hospital. yeah there's not a single white man in the movie yes <laughs> yeah which i wasn't like deliberate about it just happened like it wasn't like i said no <laughs> white men in this movie but after the fact, as we're casting, my casting director, Heidi Griffiths, turned and looked at me and it's like, you realize there are no white men that we're casting for? And I was like, oh, my God. And then I was like, well, I guess that's just my world. I don't know.
0: <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that something that is impactful still to me about like the choices made in Saving Face, the main character's love interest's father is also her boss. And so I think you... You get a chance to see in some of the parents like an immigrant experience that doesn't necessarily translate to financial success. And then you also get a chance to see somebody who would be looked at from the outside as like succeeding in in an American paradigm. And all of those folks are Asian characters. All those folks are i actually don't even know all, all of those Chinese actors. They are.
1: I, I. They're very much because it, I was so specific because so many of them speak Mandarin, yes. but then even like two of them speak Shanghainese. And I was like, like literally, thank God, like my casting director for the, Heidi Griffiths is still an incredibly close friend and the world's most patient person because I'm a bitch to cast for. I'm extremely <laughs> specific. I literally will be like, nope, I, I'm going to keep <laughs> looking until I find what I want. Um, and the, uh, but yes, everyone is, um, and, uh,
0: uh, yeah. Early adopter, too, there. That's, that's like a, that, I just feel like now, if that, that would be a, I just want to take a moment and appreciate that 15 years ago. Because that was not a choice most people were making, and that most casting directors were prioritizing, and that most directors were prioritizing. Um, but then in, in your new film, the, Main character has a, a father, and then they live in a town where, um, massively white town. Yes, and so there, there's, there's a very that's a very different, um, relationship to race. Of course, like for the character themselves. Of course, I would also imagine that, like, I would imagine for. Any person of color, maybe both of those things most of, maybe both of those are ex- experiences are possible. I guess I wanted to know, like, in terms of how you grew up, like were you the you know only Chinese kid at your high school what was your what was your environment like growing up?
1: yeah, um, I, that's a great question and and a couple of things come to mind um, first of all uh despite the fact that my parents were very like they're very recent immigrants my mom was really kind of obsessed with this idea of my not becoming too quote unquote american um so we only spoke mandarin at home and certainly there's a chinese community that we would see sometimes on the weekends but as my parents were also kind of rising the economic ranks so we're moving every few years right we're going from this crappy apartment to a slightly less crappy apartment to a slightly less crappy apartment to the first home to a better home and i will say that as they rose those ranks the neighborhoods got wider and wider like my the first apartment i was born in everybody was uh black or chicano actually in fact after mandarin the first language apparently i started speaking with spanish and my mom freaked out and was like oh my god we have which is hilarious but also just an honest commentary on like look i grew up and i adore my parents but absolutely i grew up with racist sexist and homophobic attitudes which is hilarious because i'm an old asian dyke now but at the time you know there's that that's like a real part of of i think the American experience that a lot of times I want to be honest about because unless you're, you are, um, how do we work on those things? Um, but then as the environments got wider, I will say it became harder and harder for me to feel. Like I, I think I had, I had far more friends when I was younger. And as by the time I got to high school, I would have like three friends. <laughs> and it was a very lonely time. Um, and it wasn't until college that things opened up for me again.
0: I was just going to ask... Because this is all, when you were growing up, this is all in California, right? Different different places in California? We did live in Michigan, Michigan? in a very yeah. tiny town called
1: Troy when I was very young, um, which was very white. My dad was working at the GM factory. Uh, but then we moved back to the Bay Area, and that was before Silicon Valley. So it wasn't the, you know, growing up in San Jose was like a very different situation than it is now. Um, but towards that, uh, and tell me if this is detouring because i it why i chose to set the film um where it is now is that you know i think the thing about my work cuz as as i think you were kind of alluding to saving face and the half of it are really different sorts of films i think the my my voice and the dna of it are similar but with Saving Face, I was trying to make the biggest romantic comedy I could on a tiny budget with all Asian American and Asian faces, right? Like, for me, that felt interesting because we never got to see that. With the half of it, um, I, again, there's like a very commercial hook to it where you could easily set this in like a big high school in Orange County with all white characters and it could be like a bring it on or a clueless right like a much faster broader comedy and that could be great like there's a sereno hook it could be very much like a girl like like that whole thing and that that's great but for me i'm always like but why would i make that movie it feels like any number of other people could uh so why you know like i'm not somebody who feels like the world owes me a movie and i should make a movie like honestly the world doesn't need another movie from me. Like, there's plenty of great content out there. So for me, I'm always very project-specific. Like, do I love this thing? And if I love this thing, I'm going to kill to get it made. But I also want to make it very specifically. And so in that sense, I'm like, well, if I'm going to make this... I mean, I started to write it when Trump had just been elected. And initially, I was thinking about... like, And it was also... Or it was in that, a moment before Hollywood had, quote unquote, discovered diversity as they have in like the last <laughs> couple of years. And I remember being like, well, I'm going to write this thing. It's probably going to take me another five years to get made, right? Like, I'm, but why the heck won't I make, I'm going to make the main character Chinese. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to do the way things the way I do them. And if it takes me five years or it takes me forever, it does. Um, but the, uh, one of the other things that happened is I was like, hey, I don't want to make this a period piece. You know, I don't want to be like, okay, when the late 80s and the 90s, like I wanted to be like, no, because let's face it, homophobia exists today. Immigrant bullying exists today. And on top of that, I, you know, when Trump got elected, I, it's not like I didn't know racism, sexism, and homophobia and transphobia don't exist in uh, the country. Obviously, I knew that. I think I was viscerally startled by how much of the country seemed relieved that they could now openly sort of, you know, express these views. And it made me wonder, like, well, wait a minute, you know, as somebody who fundamentally believes most people are good, and that given the resources, most people would choose to do the decent thing. What does this mean? Does this mean whole stretches of the country are filled with, quote unquote, bad people? But that made me then think about the fact that if i'm incredibly honest i grew up in a very conservative chinese family and we were totally racist and sexist and homophobic right and like are my parents bad um and i i i don't i i really my parents are wonderful people like i truly think they're good people i think that they were born with very different attitudes which since then they've come a long way but being able to see that trajectory also gives me a level of um, maybe connection or empathy to parts of the country where I I think like, well, you know, if that could happen in my family, why couldn't it happen in all these families? Yeah. And so that's when I was like, all right, I'm going to set this. I don't say it's Trump country because my goal with any of my films is – like, again, with my creative team, I'm like, I have two touchstones. One is authenticity and one is timelessness. I don't want to lean too hard into the trends of the moment because then it dates the film. Right. Like, I'm very proud that you could watch Saving Face today and it still feels, like, relevant, right? And I want people to be able to watch the half of it in 15 years and still feel like, oh, these feel like, like, you, you can still feel like there's, there's a sort of, again, timelessness to it. So I don't say Trump, but the reality is I purposely said it in Eastern Washington State in a very conservative white town that's Trump country.
0: That's and interesting. Was- even just, I just want to break in and say, even just that is interesting because I think that again, you know, in talking about your your like yearning for specificity, identifying Eastern Washington State as Trump country is not where most. It's not where we're taught. It's not where like the prevailing mindset when they would say Trump country, like as a nation, we, we're supposed to think about the South and like biscuits, you know, and we're supposed to think about a uh, tension between black and white. And we're supposed to think about a racism toward President Obama specifically. And um, mm-hmm. I think that that is really an interesting choice because, you know, something I have done multiple multiple times, I've been to like where this is set. Uh and I have also after Trump won election, I I drove the five um between Portland and Seattle. And that had a, that's a that's a highway and it it goes through it starts, you know, it Portland, Seattle, these like I think if you've never even been there, the exported idea is that they are like white progressive heaven or whatever. Um, the rural areas between there are covered in uh, Confederate flags, which is, like, there's Confederate flags painted everywhere, giant Confederate flags flopping off of uh, huge flagpoles that are in somebody's backyard. And, I, and it just is, It's it always strikes me because, like, you weren't even, you guys, you weren't even part of this. Like, this is, yeah. you clearly were not part of the Confederacy, so this is just... Flying a flag that says racism, like there's like there's not, mm-hmm. and I mean of course that's always what the Confederate flag means, but sometimes what you know a very wily white person can like put it on a bikini and be like, no, it just means Florida or whatever. But like in Washington <laughs> State, it like definitely doesn't mean Florida, you know. So um, I really appreciated that, and I think that that is the sort of specificity that makes the work make a lot of sense. And I will also just want to say before we keep going that. You know, you sort of talking about the the like Cyrano arc and and things about this movie that could be. I mean, I really that's I really even noticed that watching it. I was like, oh, this is a movie that could just be like in terms of plot points, it could just be totally different than this. There's there's no inherent need for this to be this community, except that it makes the movie. I mean, my opinion much more interesting. And when I think about... I think there's more texture. Like yeah. the goal is to
1: have more texture right. and to make the people feel authentic. Like I, I, this is a much more naturalistic movie than Saving Face because Saving Face, I'm trying to do a broader romantic comedy. Right. But I think part of why Saving Face works or endures is the textures of the characters. Like, that also, I mean, do you know how many people were like, this is a great story, we just got to cast it all white. Like, we get Reese Witherspoon to play the daughter, Ellen Burstyn to play the mother. Like, that is a very commercial hook. But my contention is, because it's not just me being stubborn and being like, I want to put someone Chinese in there. I do think it makes it a better movie. Because I think it, it. this is the real America, You know, like in a way, I think my films are actually very, very American. And I think we forget, like pretty much everyone is an immigrant of some sort, not Mm -hmm. too far back, but we forget about that or some of us do. And my goal is to get somebody like to get like some straight conservative 60 year old white guy to relate to maybe a 17 year old. Potentially closeted Chinese immigrant girl, or maybe her 50 year old immigrant Mm. father, right? If I can do that, like anytime I can, anytime you can, anytime you can expand the human capacity for empathy, then like I've won, right? Like that's really, as a filmmaker, that's my primary goal. And for you to be like, God, I watch Saving Face, and that feels like what I want. I I relate. These people feel real to me. And with the half of it, what I wanted is somebody in the heartland or maybe from one of these towns. And it's also part of why I went with Netflix because I had three financial possibilities, and two of them would have meant theatrical. But that's a whole other story. But at the time, I was like, the truth is those people and those towns are not going to go to a landmark theater to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. There's probably not even a landmark theater, <laughs> but then the privacy of their own home, they might, they might press play. Yeah. And if my goal as a filmmaker is to try and change hearts and minds, then I want some kid to watch this or maybe like an adult to watch this and make them think about for some reason in any tiny white town, there's always one family that is like a person of color family or immigrant, like every town has like one. And I want them to maybe think about that family or maybe think about that kid everyone's calling a fag, right? Like if I can get them for just a moment to like go along and start to fall in love with these characters, then I've done my job. Um and so that's in a way, I don't know if that helps address why I've I've chosen this setting, but that that's actually why. And 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 it was a sort of weird collision of Trump getting elected. <laughs> My realizing that you know, I and mean, there's another piece to this too, which we we might cover or not. But my realizing, like, oh, I'm really not somebody who makes films just to make films. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't ever have the desire. Like, I I, I don't know. It, 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 for me, it has to be connected to a sense of purpose.
0: Well, I would I would also add that for me as a queer person. I don't necessarily want um I don't necessarily yearn for media where we just remake the straight story but with a character that looks exactly the same but now kisses a guy. I I mean I I um like for instance and I'm not trying to be a dick like I you know, I watched the movie Love, Simon, because I watched, like, all queer things. Um, and that movie, to me, felt like it might do some of the things that you're talking about in terms of bringing a straight person along for a care- for a story where they care about a queer person. For me, as a queer person, the entry point of, like, this sort of, like, very ripped um, guy... I don't know. I just... I. I think there is also something about, you know, you're talking about the the sort of underdogness or, you know, the, the specificity of using the immigrant experience, using some of that. And like the way that your character is styled, that your main character is styled, for instance, in the half of it, she is. Did you? Is that actor? Is she? I have. I know that she's been in a lot of other stuff. I haven't seen her in other things. She deliberately lowering her voice. Do you know if that's no, true? No, no, no. That's, that's how she speaks. Her voice, but I don't think she was it. At least at the point, I I was
1: very very. Adamant about casting fresh faces. Mm-hmm. Although since I cast her, she's now on Nancy Drew. Right. But she wasn't to okay. the point I cast her.
0: Got it. I but thought no, I could just
1: miss her. She has a beautiful, I love low voices, apparently, because someone pointed <laughs> out to me that both my main character, both the women, have lower voices. But I I do. Um she, that is her voice, which I love. Um and but that said, she in real life. Is nothing like that character. Oh uh, yes, like I did look at her Instagram. popular. <laughs> I know. I can't. Like I adore her, and I have laughed and told her, like, I'm always like, her Instagram comes up, and I feel like a mother. I'm like, oh my god, hold on, so Like, you know, why did she make me stop? Like, I feel very protective. Like, nobody watch. And and the thing is, she's like a young adult. I have
0: to let her grow up. But in my she's heart, got her I'm own like path. Yes. yes. But, you know, Jesus, in the, lovely. Yeah, I think there's there are lots of choices like, well, for instance, I don't even know. Again. Obviously, something in you that sparked to that actor like she does have a low voice and I'm not saying every queer person has a low voice, but but um, like there's something about the way that she's using her voice that feels like, OK, that's a believably queer person uh, to me, you know, Uh her, like, middle part and her glasses and yes. the layering is, She of would never, ever wear that in real yes. life. I think she was slightly horrified at the way I styled her.
1: <laughs> but it also helped her get into character. You just said something so astute, though. That is her voice. But we actually had to spend a fair amount of time uh, rehearsing beforehand for me to, like, create the conditions to help her get into character. Um, and... She very much, she's very smart and quick and she likes to deliver the line like she's in on the joke. And I kept saying it's funnier if you're dry about it and it's funnier when you play everything straight. Like don't, don't Mm -hmm. deliver it like you think this is funny. I promise you'll be funnier. And I remember her being like, I don't know about this. But then she watched the final movie and was like, oh my God, this is much funnier than I thought it would be. But a lot of it was working with her on her was like she, her, sometimes the way that she would deliver something, it would be a lot of stripping that away so that she started calling it like low grounded Alice, I think was the name she gave. <laughs> <the> <laughs> <way>. <laughs> like, I forget what it is, but it's like that. So you're right. Um, I, I I don't think she's, I don't think she's putting on a low voice, but there is a manner that I would sort of slow her down and ground her. Sure. Um, and it, it's more emotional, like the emotional work she did to strip away her. Like she's she's got so many wonderful attributes, right? That are are she's infinitely cooler than I am. And when she was that age, was you know, it's like she's she, she, oh, she's amazing. She. I hope you get to meet her. But then to have to strip away the things I've always worked for you right? Like, the way she is works so well in society and to be forced to slowly peel those away to get to the vulnerability was, I think, it would be a challenge for anyone. Yeah. And I was so blessed that, you know, because I saw something in her, I'm like, her instincts are not at all these characters' instincts, but she's fascinating to watch. Sure. she's just fascinating to watch. And so then it just became, how do we ground her in this character? And like, you know, go and I, I think at the end of the day, what you want is you just want smart actors who are ultimately willing to go there with you. And I think she did just this marvelous job. Yes. Yeah, I mean, all three fantastic. of them did. Yes, honestly, all three of them like were so willing to like work together and go there and go to a deeper emotional place and access the part of themselves that they don't usually show, um, and but that they were then willing to show in this film.
0: So I want to ask you, I'm looking at the time, and I want to make sure that I don't forget to bring this up. You know, in your... I guess in this film, maybe the main character is more um, on the, like, humanities side of things. But you're in Saving Face, you know, she's a doctor, and I, I know that you also have, like, a STEM background because you are... Let me get, let me see. Am I getting this right? You're like you are. Are you a Stanford grad in computer science? I
1: am. A Which long time seems ago. to <laughs> me. But
0: like if I think about, you know, things that have specific career trajectories, that's one of those that if it's like Stanford computer science grad, like we know what the trajectory is. And it actually in your early career, you followed some of that trajectory because you worked at Microsoft. I did. I,
1: I spent my 20s uh, designing software in Seattle. And so I spent my 20s living in Washington State. Yeah.
0: And then from that moment, I, I feel like I've like, you know, I read about this when I first watched Saving Face and I, know, I don't think I ever found out like, wait, what the fuck? So it's like, that's what your life is. You know, like this path it's like Stanford, computer science to Microsoft, like seems so, you know, such a, and then, and then you make your first movie. So talk to me about this moment between these things. And I, you also yeah. started by saying that you're, you're an improviser. This is why you have this microphone that you're using. I did not know you were an improviser. So like, did you have this arts thing going your whole life? Or was this oh, a no. jump between the things?
1: <laughs> no, I, I think probably the big constant in my life is I'm extremely practical. Um, and I think that is an immigrant thing. I mean, I, I grew up knowing that I was going to have to take care of my parents someday Um, it never occurred to me to major in the liberal arts because um, I mean I secretly always read and that might have been a byproduct of moving so much um, that books were kind of my one constant right Um, but it never occurred to me that it was something I could do as an actual career it was just going to be you know, my private sort of uh, solace in a way. Um, And I didn't even take any writing classes in college. Um, I took a lot of, you know, feminist studies classes, like outside of computer science. But um, I I chose a career that I knew I was gonna be able to pay off my loans. And I knew I'd be, I've been financially self-sustaining since I was 18. And it's extremely important to me in my life that I never have to count on anyone else. And I think that's been a guiding principle, and it led to, you know, spending most of my 20s working in a job, which was going to be a good job, but I don't think I realized how good financially it was going to be, because midway through, it exploded. Like, computer science became this big thing, and that gave me um, a more freedom. and And it's part of why I think the art's you know we, we always see the same stories because the reality is most people can't afford to be in the arts if you don't have a patron of some sort whether that's your family or you know your spouse or if there you don't have somebody and god bless them if, like i i'm i don't think there's any shame in that i'm like listen however you're able to sustain yourself we need voices out there right and for me I, I think had I not gone into computer science, I certainly would never have become, or had not gone into something practical to pay off loans and, you know, save a nest egg, I would never have become a filmmaker, any sort of artist. Uh, but it's kind of like I saved enough money to become my own patron. And and so this is where I get hyper practical. Um, and I I basically when I, I, towards the end of my being at Microsoft, I didn't know it was the end, I, I happened to take a weekend workshop and long story short, I ended up in a class at the University of Washington's extension program, wrote a script, uh, the teacher actually said, like, look, I'd be interested in optioning this. I didn't know what that meant, wow. but it gave me this moment of like, wait, this could happen, and that's when I kind of looked you know his point was like we'll go to hollywood we'll sell this it'll probably never get made but you know it'll pre- and if it gets made it'll definitely be white <laughs> like <laughs> probably not going to be gay and i was like well god if this thing could get made i'm very specific ideas of how i want it made and he was like you need to quit your job you need to move to new york or la immediately and you need to learn what it takes to direct this that's your only shot And so I looked at my bank balance and I planned out. I'm like, all right, I'll live on $40,000 a year for five years. At the end of five years, if I haven't made this film, I'll say, all right, I gave it a good college try and I'm still going to have like eight months to find a job. Right, like so. That was my because in my mind I was like, well, if I'm out of the tech field in five years, this is gonna take me a really long time. So eight months seems about right to find something. Like it was this whole literally planned out thing where I'm like, if I have to learn a new language, yeah, it sounds, like sounds like a spreadsheet. Sounds like a spreadsheet was involved. I'm super, super like that. And what's funny is that like, yeah, again, long story short, I, I, my five year deadline hit in the second week of my shoot for saving face, wow. and. But here's another thing you'll enjoy in terms of present day. So when Saving Face came out, right, I, I, I was like a deer in headlights. Because I, I mean, somewhere I must have had some belief that this could happen. But also, I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, It's like any film is super hard to get made, let alone that film. And when it happened, people were like, what's next? I had no game plan. I, I was like, I just wanted to make this film. And my agents were like, great, there are all these things were coming in. And so I was just sort of responding to the market and only picking things that seemed interesting to me. But they were pretty much, you know, like I, I didn't have my own stories, like another story I was planning to do. And for a few years, I was actually pretty busy, just like writing for hire and doing different things. Uh, and then my mom got sick. So I dropped everything 10 years ago. Um, I had actually just sold a TV pitch to ABC and this happened. I dropped everything, went to, uh, moved to San Francisco, which is where I am now. Um, well, at the time I went up, I, I didn't know I was moving. I thought I was going up for like a few weeks and then it became a few months. And finally, after a number of months, I was like, okay, I, I think I've moved here. Like, I just need to be here. Um, and in my head, I thought, well, that's all right. Like, I was 39 at the time. And I thought, well, my 20s were about computer science. My 30s were about doing this crazy-ass film thing. My 40s will be about my family. And I'm just going to, like, take care of my family. And I honestly was very satisfied with my life. You know, I, I it, thank God these 10 years have been amazing for me in terms of, like, my connection with my mom. I hadn't honestly lived in the same place as her since I was 16. So having, and we don't live together anymore, but the fact that, you know, she's nearby and I see her all the time has made a huge difference. Um, and I really thought I, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm out of the industry and that's it. The improv came up about uh, well, maybe six years ago. Um, it was just, honestly, I, I I briefly thought maybe I should try writing again. I couldn't write at all. And I thought, all right, I'm 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 just going to, I'm clearly afraid of failure. I'm just going to take something where I'm guaranteed to fail. And I'm going to fail publicly and this will <laughs> inure me to failure. And it totally didn't work because I took it. Um, I didn't write at all. I just fell in love with improv and I fell so in love with improv, I like threw myself into it. Like shout out to End Games Improv in San Francisco and I loved it so much and actually even more I loved eventually I started teaching improv and I, I think I'm actually a better teacher than I am an improviser like nothing gives me greater joy than watching my students have a good show like more than me having a good show and honestly when I think back on it I think being an improv teacher helps me a great deal as a director you know like there are some similarities um, but ultimately I was like okay great this is my life about three years ago I got pulled back into the industry totally at random. Well, actually what happened is I had a breakup and my mom's health had stabilized for like the previous like year. And I just had this moment where like my long-term relationship broken up. I was walking down the street and I literally had this moment where I was like, here's a question, do you believe in God or some sort of larger universe?
0: Um, this question is in your film and I paused it and thought, um, I believe that there is a higher power. I don't know that that for me makes any sense beyond other people, the collective wisdom of the group, which I guess as a, you know, blanket of interconnected thoughts does work as God? That's my answer.
1: What about you? Uh, That's a great answer. So I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about it, actually. I'm not sure why. But what I've come to is – so I I never grew up with any religious basis. Um, I do pray, which is kind of weird. But um, I I do sort of spend time thinking, you know – like, I guess what I come to is that I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's a higher universe or a God, but I chose to, I choose to believe because I prefer the person I am when I believe there's some sort of order to the universe. And so it's this moment of like, because otherwise everything's chaos, right? And I don't know that it even matters to me if God exists or not. I think if someone told me conclusively God didn't exist, I would still say, okay, but I'm just going to like for me there's a need to be connected to something bigger, whether it's a greater humanity. And it's just better for me when I choose my actions accordingly. And in that moment, I just I still remember I was walking down Valencia, I'm thinking about this and I'm like, well, if this is true, I cannot imagine the universe thinks that my greatest purpose in life is to be someone's good daughter or someone's good girlfriend, and that's it. Like, I really want to be those things, and I think those things are important. But with the resources I have and being as lucky as I am living in this country, surely there's something else that I could be applying myself toward. And in that moment, for whatever weird reasons, I started writing again. Like, it was pouring out of me. And that's when I started to, like, outline what was going to become the half of it. And this is where I do think maybe there's a larger universe. Because in that first month, I randomly get an email from an exec who's always wanted to work together. Who's like, are you still writing? And I was (laughs) like, I don't even have agents at this point. I'm like, that is super weird. I literally just started writing. She's like, well, I just started this job at DreamWorks. I, I have a project. I keep thinking you'd be right for it. Will you pitch my boss. And I ended up getting that gig. I wrote it, had a super fun time. They sort of came up with, like, they had, like, three other projects. And I was like, you know, I've never written my second film. And now that I'm finally writing, I mean, it may go nowhere, but I actually really want a shot at, you know, I just want a shot at, like, I've never written something for myself to direct Sense Saving Face. Everything else is for someone else. And um, that's when I... Um well honestly this part of the story doesn't reflect that well on me but basically what happens is I I so Trump's just been elected I'm sitting in my office every day 6 months go by they actually contacted me again to be like okay great are you done with your spec we have another project and I had done no writing Whatsoever. I'd spent all six months like maybe writing a line, deleting it, writing it, deleting it, thinking I was the world's worst writer, googling endlessly about Trump, and I I just was like, God, I'm happiest when I'm working. I should just freaking take this job because, you know, obviously I'm not writing on my own. But then I was sort of dragging my heels, and I always remember this because a friend of mine was like, you know, Alice, I just think you're not going to be happy until you write that script, even if it sucks. And I, I think on some deep level, I knew this friend was right. So I ended up saying to these execs, I'm so sorry, like, who am I to be turning down paying work? But the truth is I've gotten nowhere on my spec and I, I need to get this written. Um, and they were so gracious. They were like, no worries, you know, like, and actually it turned out their boss is a big saving face man. And she's like, when we told her you're working in her second movie, she was like, nobody bug her. Oh, <laughs> Which wow. was like this great thing. But then I was like, okay, I've now told people, like, this is so embarrassing. I better get this thing written because I'm apparently putting my life on hold. If it sucks, at least it's out of me and I can take something else. So this is the thing. I've never so far, knock on wood, missed an externally placed deadline. But apparently I am crap at my own internal deadlines. Like, they (laughs) will just go on for years and years and I won't fulfill them. So what I did is I wrote a check for $1,000 to the NRA. And I gave it to my friend CJ, <laughs> who's a butch firefighter, who's the only one of my friends who, because like if she gives her word, she'll do something, she's the only one of my friends who absolutely would send that check in. And I basically was like, all right, I'm going to give myself like five weeks well this script has to be done on August 8th these two people will read it it could be the crappiest first draft ever but it has to be done if it is not done you are sending that check in and then I told everybody like, and it was the most wow. stressful five weeks of my life I got <laughs> texted by everybody being like, you better not become a donor for the NRA and it was basically the point is I, I needed to find a consequence so horrible I couldn't live with myself and that's how I got the first draft written um, and then, yeah, I put it aside and then I came back, spent five months like massaging it. And then that second draft, like that's, well, the crazy thing is like my writing group was like, "That's great. Send it out. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know anyone, but somehow people slipped it around within like three months. I had three financing offers and then that draft is the one we shot. Like we were, it actually could now that it's so funny. I look at it every day. I literally can show you the check. The
0: yes. There it is. Oh, my God. I mean, I had to black out because I was like, at some
1: point, I might like take a photo and post it to be because it's like my writing advice to people. You know, I'm like, literally (sighs) find a consequence that's so horrible. And then for accountability, you got to tell somebody like, don't be like, oh, I'm because here's already I will never send an art a check to the NRA. That will never happen. But you need to find someone you know will. And then whatever it is that you can't live with yourself. That's the thing you got to do.
0: Um, I could talk to you for the rest of my, uh, day. It is one hour into our thing and I, into our thing, into this podcast, and I always keep it to an hour. So I want to be respectful of your time and I, let's see, what do I, well, I'm going to ask you to shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing that made you feel that you could be who you are today. Um, so like a queer hero, I could give you a second to think about it. I didn't warn you about this at the beginning. I usually warn people, but I got very chuffed. I don't know. Is that a word that would appropriately... Look, here's what I will say. It's been fantastic to speak with you. Um, One thing that I'm just going to take from this conversation that I really needed to hear right now in my life is that it does seem that you've sort of greeted... More right turns than than a lot of people have in their personal life and career, with the openness to try to go down that path, and that's something that I really am taking from this conversation. That's helpful for me today. You know, I I make most of my living doing stand up. That's not a job right now. I released a memoir. It isn't. It's so
1: good that I just assume that you make oh, your living from being a stand-up.
0: No, I mean it is. It is. It's. Uh, oh, okay. I just mean because people can't gather. Like the concept oh, of the stand-up. Moment, like it's just moment, like not right. a job. You know, and okay. um, I released uh, my first book last week, but there's no bookstores yes, book that are open. Like it just is. It's this moment of for me having to like really surrender to things that are much larger than me and sometimes i can get into a zone in my own mind where i think that i have to figure it out like when things are bigger than me i'm like i gotta figure out how to navigate this and i think something that i'm hearing and what you're saying is is just that moment of like it maybe isn't always that it's not always about figuring out the path through the thing the thing is happening you're already in the thing you don't need to you know Perfectly manage every moment of this, and I'm having to remind myself of that constantly because I just mentioned the stand-up thing and the and the book thing. It's like the things that are happening for so many of us right now. It's these are I've never gone through this before, and sometimes when it's a new experience, I can feel like I don't know how to do this, and it's like I have to remind myself, you're already in it, like you're already doing the thing. Do do the day, just do this day. It's okay, just breathe in and out and do this day. Um, so this was a very helpful conversation in terms of thinking about navigating unforeseen right turns. Sounds like you've had a lot of them in your life. Yes, I, I, I just really love what
1: you said. I, 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 I want to hear, because I need those reminders too. And and what, you know, it, it, I've always felt like the discomfort of whether someone wants to call it boredom, or however mm-hmm. it manifests for them. But basically, it's lack of structure. Mm-hmm. I think that's where art lives. Um, I think once oh we get too God. comfortable with it, then we're just churning out art from the past, right? Like, we're good at it. We can perform it. But, I, like, I would not make saving face today. Like, I'm glad that it endures today. Right. But that is not my story today. That was my story 15 years ago. You know, like, the things I'm working on next are things that emotionally appeal to me now. And I think that you want, you, you kind of need things to quiet down to be able to hear yourself think. And it's very uncomfortable. But I think for someone talented like yourself, who's an artist or for anyone out there, um, you, you want to be kind of uncomfortable or you're just going to be churning out something that you've already done. Oh, my and God. And why not just,
0: yeah. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. Jordan, if you could just clip that part out and insert it into my brain as a constant thought, that would be amazing. Just the part out about how the discomfort is really, really the key. Um, Okay, great. Um, (laughs) Yes, but you can also reach
1: out anytime and I'll just remind you. Okay, great. Feel free to reach out to your Chinese,
0: your queer Chinese
1: auntie. Auntie will tell you. But, um... Well, so...
0: Oh, Tell me this, tell me, queero, me. and then I think we have oh. to—we have to like cut this because we could just yes. then we'll just we'll just end the podcast. We can just call each other on the phone like friends. But uh, yes, yeah. but, hooray! Okay, yes. that was
1: really the goal of this podcast: <laughs> is to become your friend. I was like, the podcast was just like the process. Like the end goal is the friendship. Yeah. But the uh, okay, so this is a little bit embarrassing from the standpoint of I, I wish I could be like. And this amazing celebrity that we all know, but I think this might be indicative of me, which is that the person that comes to mind is not even like her Her sexuality probably isn't gay because she was married, but weirdly was my English teacher, Mrs. Jean Gazelle Shop, who is the only name in my film, the half of it, the only character whose name um, is from real life is Mrs. G. And and I mention her because she was formative for me in terms of making me realize I could be whomever. I, like, I, I know it seems weird to liken liberal arts and being queer, but i, I it's not that I'm trying to say that, but she just believed um, that I could be more than a computer scientist. And she said as much to me when I I'd go back to visit her. And at one point I told her I majored in computer science and she was like, well, that's a shame. And <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> But she also like she she made me watch Harold and Maude. Like she did all sorts of things to expand I me. And I and I bring her up yes to give her a shout out to her, but really to give a shout out to any teachers out there because the truth of the matter is you guys, I mean you're like the Queeros whether you identify as queer or not because the impact you have on you know on kids like it, it's it's phenomenal. And I I would say that for me. Um, that was hugely formative in who I became today. So I don't I will, know if that answers I really you.
0: appreciate that answer so much, and that was so clear in the film. So I watched it with my girlfriend Katie, and then we just had lunch, and then then this was the conversation right after. And over lunch, I was talking to her about Mrs. Weeder, who was my high school English teacher, who was so strange. She was the strangest. She was so strange. Um and wore, like, only clothes from the 70s, and she was so strange. And I loved her class so much. I had I had this, like, very incredible humanities education at this super Catholic high school that in other ways was very damaging and, and difficult for me. Mm-hmm. But, like, her English class, I have an E.E. E. Cummings poem that's, like, framed over my sink. And she used to make us, like, we had to start every class with um, prayer, At my high school, you know, like the Our Father or the Hail Mary. And then she would require in her class that then after that, we listened to Sunshine of Your Life by cream on a, like, turntable, which nobody had at this time. And then from there, we all had to stand and recite together this E.E. Cummings poem. And it was just this, she was like the only person that put, you know, faith in the same category with art like it really mattered to me that she played this song we played every, every class started that way and then I I found this poem framed um when I was doing a show in Burlington Vermont and I like bought it immediately and I because it just reminds me that um that a lot of different things are prayer you know like Eric Clapton might be playing the guitar that could also be prayer and that stuff is really impactful so I I love that you shouted at your teacher because that's what I was just doing an hour ago while eating some food was thinking about um, teachers who seemed to see that I had something valuable that was outside the box, even at a time where I was being rewarded mostly for the ways that I was normative, you know, mostly being rewarded as like the girlfriend of the captain of the football team. But like my weirdo English teacher, that's who I chose to be my um, mentor, you know, because I felt yes. like a weirdo too. So, rock on.
1: Yeah. No, I I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, no, thank you so much. I, I'm really um,
0: so grateful. This was uh, an awesome you. conversation.
1: Yeah. I, I and and also you are so much more articulate about my films than I am. So I, <laughs> I feel like I feel like you need to tell me how to express myself about them, and I will. You know, I will. I will follow suit. No problem. You.
0: Just shoot me an email. I'll write a quick press release and perfect. And we'll team up <laughs> um, for ultimate success. Alice, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on the new film. It is available. Was it? Is it May first on Netflix? May first.
1: Yeah, May first. We were going to have, which was kind of great. Netflix surprised me a few months ago. Uh, they were going to do a theatrical release for the film, which never happens for films like ours that have like no known stars yet, but they're like, it turned out well, we're gonna which I got super excited to have my friends and family in a theater. And then as the weeks went on, I became super excited to have them not in a theater because right, right. <laughs> of a pan you know, because of the pandemic. So it, it's uh you know, I I feel grateful that there's a film at all to
0: show. I hope people like it. Um and uh yeah. yeah. I think it'll be a big comfort to folks right now and If there is a screening down the line, let me know when it is. I can take a quick pop-up to San Francisco. Maybe it'll be here in L.A. You could take a quick pop-down. But um, have a great rest of your day, and thank you so much. Likewise, and thank you.